You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. It's possible that Knight believed he was one of the few sane people left. He was confounded by the idea that passing the prime of your life in a cubicle, spending hours a day at a computer in exchange for money was considered acceptable, but relaxing in a tent in the woods was disturbed. Observing the trees was indolent. Cutting them down was enterprising. What did Knight do for a living? He lived for a living. Michael Finkel is the author of True Crime and The Art Thief. We're talking today about his book, Stranger in the Woods. Thank you for joining me, Michael. Rick, my pleasure to be here. As I read this book, I found it more and more affecting me. And I think that was really an interesting effect because what I felt was that um, I was confronted with uh, the definite uh, definition of humanity by looking at what's outside, the very edges of what we consider human. Could you, when you wrote this book, did you know what you were going to end up doing? I feel like this. I, I... I can't really explain to you fully what attracted me to this story, but just your reaction, which by the way, I'm grateful for, may have, may hint at the reason you said that night affected you. And there's something, there may be two things going on. There's the complete outlier personality of Chris Knight, who defies all expectation, doesn't want friends, doesn't want to interact. I mean, you think about this entire world, you think about the way I'm talking to you here through my computer, we all are seem to be seeking connectivity, while Chris Knight seems to be seeking disconnectivity, which is sort of a very profoundly unusual stance. So he Knight is like a very difficult person to get your head around, but in another sort of way, I think when I was working on this story and I was sort of reporting, literally reporting around right night, meaning that I, I, I was fortunate enough to be able to talk to Chris Knight in the jail, but also I talked to all the residents whose homes he either broke into or disturbed and just sort of watching the reaction of all the residents and how everyone's reaction was so different from, I hate this guy to, I totally, I'm kind of jealous of him. I sort of understood. And just all these reactions made me think that Chris Knight himself is what they call a cipher. Like you can sort of put onto him your own feelings and your own emotions. And the fact that you said you were affected by him, I have so many questions to ask you about that, uh, was really what motivated me to write this. Like the fact that you can sort of learn things about yourself by studying this weirdly outlier person, if that seems to make any sense. It makes perfect sense because I, and I hadn't realized it until you explained it in that way. This book is a Rorschach test for the reader. We will enter it learning all about this man, Chris Knight, who is a, a hermit, and quite a bit about you as a reporter and a writer. But what we'll really learn about is ourselves. And I think that this book 
calls upon and strengthens something. Let me read F. Scott Fitzgerald quote. The test of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposing ideas in the mind at the same time and still retain the stability of function. <laughs> and I think that's exactly what this book is. It has, it offers two very conflicting ideas to the reader. And we, by the end of the book, we have learned to embrace those two ideas. And I would, maybe we can go further. So those two ideas, I'd like to hear your definition. Is it that being completely separate from the human race is uh, I, for lack of a better word, like not a good, bad thing, or is it being separated from the human race could possibly be a beneficial thing? What would you say the two, the two conflicting thoughts that we're trying to hold? Maybe I'd, I'd like to hear it in your words too. Well, my thought is that on one hand, we're presented with a man we immediately admire and we think he's a very efficient, he's a really great guy. He has learned to live entirely by himself. And yet, just as Christite does, he is a man who lives outside the law. He has unquestionably committed hundreds of crimes. He has some portion of the people he committed crimes against were terrorized by his you know, very existence. And yet, at the same time, we like him. And his, the, crime, the things that we call crimes are to him and it, it seems to us his entire lifestyle is a kind of art form. Well, I really, really liked what you just said. I'm just sort of sitting with that for a second. I don't think, so, you know, we talked previously about the Art Thief book and this book is a little bit older and sort of, sort of nice the way when you sit with a project that you haven't, um, that, that wasn't just written recently, that a lot of other larger sort of bigger issues kind of come to the fore. And I really liked what you just said. I would also say these books, um, both this and The Art Thief, uh, come at a similar problem from, from, uh, from slightly different angles in that, well, both in both books, what are considered crimes are also to the criminal almost acts of art and they are i mean uh stefan's uh crimes the way he committed them and the way that you describe them they feel like a, almost a form of dance or, or a martial art and, and here it's the same thing that the man has really perfected what he does in a way that does not harm anybody but yet still breaks the laws and i think too this also these books really speak to define as to what's human by showing us the absolute edges of what's human on the one step to either side for either fellow would be considered, you know, inhuman, you know, a, a psychopath or, and, but neither of them is a psychopath. They're just really bizarre artists. <laughs> I, I mean, I like, I don't want to disagree with you about compliments to my own book, but so I think Chris Knight, who, Christopher Knight, the hermit at the, at the heart of, of, of the book, The Stranger in the Woods, he is a confounding person on so many levels. Yeah, you could, I could, I could agree with you partially saying, yeah, what his actions, which was removing himself from society for more than a quarter of a century, had this strangely artistic air to it. 
I think there were victims. No, he never was violent and never hurt anybody. You know, people feel felt violated. And believe me, when I talked to the victims of some of his crimes, some shrugged it off as a no more disturbing than the seasonal, you know, mosquitoes. And some just some were profoundly disturbed by the idea that a stranger who they didn't know was gentle at the time was coming into their house. But then there's this other layer. So you really beautifully broke down the book into its three sort of component parts, which was uh, this very odd cipher person that is completely unknowable to almost the rest of us, or what you called it, like a complete outlier to humanity. Then there's this how the sausage is made, like I, how does a reporter talk to a person who hasn't spoken for a quarter century? And I, I, you know, when you're in your writing room, you make these decisions, you don't know if they're right or wrong. So I always appreciate a positive reaction. But like, I was like, I feel like the reader might want to, I could be sort of a bridge between the reader and this very odd person. And you, I'll be very honest about the struggles and mistakes and even embarrassing moments that I made uh, in trying to talk to someone who is very challenging to talk to. You remember, you know, he makes fun of me. He's inappropriate. I mistake his brother for him. I'm not, you know, I'm not a perfect person. And then the third thing, which I believe is the most important element besides a bizarre story, a weird sort of how the sausage is made, which is how do you, the reader, react to this person. And I actually find it to be the most enjoyable. The, the thing that kept me the most um, entranced while working on this project is because uh, I myself sort of varied on how I felt about Chris Knight. Like he, I was admired him. I disliked him. I was confounded by him. And then on top of all this, Rick, I was going to add before I let you jump in, the funny, weird, almost like head scratching part is that Chris Knight himself, the hermit, did and does not care what we think about him. He was not, he, he was not trying to make a piece of art. He was just, he is a real hermit. Like there's performative art. There's Julia Hill Butterfly who went into a tree to protest, you know, environmental degradation. There was, um, you know, a there, there was a you know Thoreau who went to Walden to write a book and tell everybody you know about his experiences. But this was a guy who had no, doesn't care at all what we think about him. In fact, would prefer that we didn't think about him. And I find that to be like a little weird frisson on the top. Like he's not happy that we think it's art. He doesn't care, and we just should acknowledge that kind of purity um during this really fun conversation i'll let you take over i well I, I i agree now one of the things i have to say is the book is just so beautifully written in terms of and both the structure and and the way you immerse us in a, an action scene that's just like something out of a Michael Mann movie. I was thinking of the movie Fever. He, just because of the precision which with which you describe it, and then slowly take us deeper and deeper both into the mind of the man, but also deeper and deeper into ourselves and examining our own reaction to the things he does. And, and so... Talk about just, I think that in a sense, as a writer, at least in the two books I've read, you are very much a minimalist. This this is stripped down to just what you need to say and you let the reader rest between your words. I mean, can I just hire you as my PR agent? Because, I mean, I'm honestly like, 
Truly. So I make my living writing and, you know, you're right in a room and you never know how anyone's going to react. And so when you say something to that, it literally makes me feel emotional because um, you don't know how anyone's going to react to what you write. And what you just said was sort of very beautiful to me. You know, I have uh, I read a lot of books. I love to read. I read books of philosophy. I read full on action thrillers. Um, and I love all sorts of different styles of writing. I embrace the fact that we that not all writers write the same. How boring would that be? Um, but you're right. I believe that, I guess maybe it's just a matter of just um, also just part of my life. I, I mentioned to you right before we uh, started recording that I have three children here that are on vacation. I have two dogs. I have a wife. I have a busy life. And I want to absorb books. But sometimes uh, external life factors uh, get in the way and suddenly a book is put down and not re uh picked up and i like so i feel like shoot if i have your attention i better grab it right now and tell you everything that's essential to know i feel like i do tremendous amount of research i read like uh i read more than a hundred books on solitude and hermits throughout history and you know what what's the appropriate amount of social interaction for humans and i tried to let the reader feel that the person they're reading knows what they're talking about rather than like, I, I don't like the professor at the lectern style, which other books sort of do sort of push upon you. Um, I think a good, a good book lets the reader decide how he or she feels. I like to portray, I like to portray the good and the bad of everyone. I feel like it's almost like insulting to a reader if you pretend that a person's flaws don't exist uh, or in the case of a criminal, if their good side doesn't uh, doesn't also exist. And then you finish reading a short book, but then like all the little philosophical, I don't know, eddies there should still play about your head. Like I, I know I think a successful read is you don't you not only read about a fascinating person and sort of kind of nodded along with the struggles of a extroverted I'm a, you know I'm a journalist I make my living talking to strangers and here I am talk, trying to talk to someone who doesn't want to talk to anyone you could sort of chuckle along at the weird struggles of that but mostly I hope that you start to think about like the decisions you make in your own life like why are we afraid to be alone what is it that's inside us that frightens us you know I mean there's like the, the, I kind of think between me and you, Rick, I kind of think that The Stranger in the Woods is kind of a philosophical, a book of philosophy, but rather than, if you read a lot of philosophy books, it's sort of like very dense and very heavy and you feel like you're in a college class. So I tried to hide the book of philosophy tucked under a crazy cracking story. And I don't know if it worked, but that was sort of my thought, like these little, I'm just gonna slip these little things uh, under the edges of the carpet or the edges of the story while you're sort of being carried along by this. And and, and I appreciate your comments to, to that effect. Well, as I said, you, in a sense, you don't finish this book because it keep it stays with you and you keep like thinking back on it and, and reading it rereading it even when you're not actually reading it now one of the things i thought that both this book and, and the art thief shared was an uncon unusual uh approach to to choosing a writing uh subject which is to just write somebody you've heard about out of the blue a handwritten letter and hope that they will 
you know, return your letter. And you had good luck with both these guys, but this doesn't strike me as, you know, an advisable business plan. <laughs> the reason I'm, I'm laughing more than you could even know because I have been a full-time writer for 35 years now and never once in those three and a half decades has this career struck me as the most logical or advisable one so I, I'm chuckling out of just like yeah um uh, uh I think the secret is that I really don't have any um marketable skills uh, I'm just curious about how the world works. And I've been deeply blessed in that other people have been willing to uh, read the sentences that I've been constructing. But yeah, uh, if I could describe my entire writing life in one word or less, it would be inefficient. And so, yeah, I'm always jealous of those like factory writers. Like how does James Patterson have three books come out in a year? And like, you know, I, I uh, yes, um, do not, if there's ever like, if there's ever like a business school person I'm talking to and I start talking about my career and they start asking five questions and I answer them honestly. And they're like, this is the ridiculous business. I'm like, yeah, you figured that out in five questions. I've been, you know, 35 years. I, I literally uh, pedal, I construct sentences. I find people, I write them letters. It takes me, this book and The Art Thief both took 10 years from first letter to actually holding a book in my hand. And so I take my time with it. It's totally inefficient. Um, but it's only inefficient here. in that I, it takes a long time. Actually, what you get out of it is has a lot of bang for the book for the reader. I mean, I could read a 2000 page book about this guy and be bored completely bored and, and get absolutely nothing from it. I read this book in like three days and, and it was every day was gripping and I can tell you that I will be thinking about it for a long time. One of the things I want to ask about is that as we read about Chris Stein, there's this tendency just natural when you're telling a story about a person as you are, um, there's a tendency to really identify with this guy. Yet, and this gets back to my initial reaction, we're thrust upon two opposing paths. On one hand, we like the guy. We say, wow, what an accomplishment to live all that time. There's all this amazing stuff. On the other hand, you think, wow, man, no humans for 28 years, maybe not, not an operable mental health uh, plan and, and con, you know thousands of crimes committed. Talk about you know the idea of creating a character with whom the reader is supposed to identify, but yet you with whom nobody can identify. Right. So the phrase "creating a character" a little bit. I'll have to just push back a little bit since I this is nonfiction. So there is no creating a character at all. Although of course. The person who's writing the book does get to pick and choose and can put their thumbs on the scale. And there is no, uh, although I like to give the reader the air of impartiality, there's no such thing as impartiality. And I think that's sort of baked into the whole complication of, you know, short book, simple sentences, but yet a lot of complicated, complicated things going on. Of course, I can't pretend to be completely neutral about Chris Knight, 
Um, although I, I don't ever shy away from if someone said, oh, my God, he ruined my life. I, you know, I bought this cabin and with my hard earned money to get away from the troubles of the world. And here's a guy breaking in. He, you know, I, I, you, you can't ignore all the unsavory aspects of Chris Knight. And to Chris Knight's credit, he told me directly during an interview, you know, don't cherry pick, take the good and take the bad. You know, um, I feel like Chris Knight. To rewind, you know, I did write him a letter and he did respond and he sort of, you know, he, I guess if it was his, his first choice would be nobody would ever write a book about him, but uh, he sort of realized that uh, he would be hounded by curiosity seekers. So he granted me and I will never um, stop being appreciative of the great gift that Chris Knight gave me. I did not pay him money to write his book. He had no editorial control. Nothing he told me was off the record. It was all on the record. And he said, you know, begrudgingly, Mike, I guess I anoint you my biographer. <laughs> and I took that uh, responsibility seriously. What else I can say? Oh, yeah, there was a couple of things he said about, you know, uh, in terms of taking a whole bunch of work and, you know, this could have been a easily 700 page book, but I, I don't know, you probably talk to more writers than I do. Um, I do think about readers when I'm writing, I do think about like, Hey, these are busy people. Let's get, to, let's get to, let's get to the cut to the chase. You know, where I, I um, sometimes have young writers come to me and they say, Oh, will you read, the, you read, will you read this book? And I remember actually a conversation I had with someone and I said to uh, said to him, well, uh, you know, it's starting out a little slow. Um, and, the, and, and the person responded to me, well, the second half is the good half. And I'm like, oh, both halves have to be the good half, you know, is what I responded to him. <laughs> There's no good half and bad half. They both have to be the good halves. And so I really do uh, think about let's move things along, but let's also like put these occasional like deep, deep dives in. And, and, and as you, I really, your words were so lovely and touching where you said like you closed the book, but you're not quite done digesting it, whatever would be the right thing. It's sort of the echoes of, of, of what Chris Knight did sort of should play about your mind. I really feel that just like the art thief changed the way that I appreciate beauty in the world, Chris Knight, the hermit, changed the way that I spend time doing nothing by myself you know there's this weird I watch I observe people all the time it's my job where if someone's alone I mean you could probably start a 10 second countdown until they fish their phone out of their pocket and start fiddling with it nobody likes to actually spend time with themselves why or what are we afraid that we're going to discover and I really don't have like great hard solid advice I just you know Chris Knight you take the the ultimate uh, hermit and what little parts of it can you use to make your own life richer, more multidimensional. And if some of the things that you discover about yourself are upsetting or not joyous, that's probably for your betterment. The better you know yourself and accept yourself, maybe the better you comport yourself in the world and the better other people's interactions with you become, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think being with Chris Knight, you know, the person who shunned all social interactions bizarrely made me a better father and family man by uh, teaching me about myself and what's important. These are your, these are odd conclusions to come from a ultimate hermit, but uh, I think I even mentioned these a little bit towards the end. You know, uh, for me, I I'm drawn to that kind of 
to hermitude, even though I'm a social person. I interview hundreds of people and I have lots of friends and do lots of different things. So one of the things I found really that made me happy was right off the bat, we see this, this guy who's been a hermit and has been out of touch with humans for 28 years. And my thought is, well, how did he do it? It would be really hard. And then we find out in the opening scene that he does it by stealing from other people, stealing food from other people. And I think, wow, I never thought you could do that. I guess you could. And maybe that's the way to you. I could be a hermit. <laughs> and obviously that has, you know, the second you start thinking those thoughts, you know, you're looking at the mirror and saying, what the heck kind of person am I? I mean, even just, yeah, I mean, Chris Knight is a confounding uh, person. And I, I think even when I started writing about it, the first thing was do not simplify this person. I think you should, despite, as we've mentioned before, the book being like barely 200 pages, I think it's 191 pages. I feel that every part of me when I was working on this was like, don't, don't cut any corners, like the complications of Chris Knight and the implications, just like you said, this is someone who wanted to be by himself, but yet relied on other people's purchases. This is a person who you could, you know, from that, from the section you had me read, uh, could be thought of as a lazy, indolent person who is only sucking from society. The other way to see it is this is a person who, if, if any of us, any of us thinking people, and I feel like, uh, Rick, your listeners are questioning intelligent, I mean, I'm, I'm imagining them so, that uh, listeners, then they're going to be like, wow, is there something wrong with the direction that modern society has taken where we're all being dragged in a million different directions? And the more uh, modern conveniences, the more time-saving uh, items that have been made, the less free time we seem to have. And, uh, you know, I, there was this sort of, though Knight himself confoundingly and beautifully said, I'm not trying to tell anybody else what to do. I'm just doing what made me happy, but tucked in that sort of pure example of separation is this sort of uh, editorial statement that I renounce modern society and he found the thing that I think makes spins this whole story into another sort of dimension is that Chris Knight loved being alone he found happiness this wasn't someone who was just just uh, distraught and wishing to return to the company of others he would have preferred never ever to have been captured and lived his entire life anonymous and at the same time what's like the Outside of the death penalty, the most severe punishment that we have is solitary confinement. And at this, you know, so at the same time, it could be like the world's most severe punishment and the world's most like gratifying solitude. Uh, and it's this pretty much the same thing. And as you mentioned at the outset, every reader is going to fall on a different place in that spectrum. And maybe not even, we're not even consistent. Some days being alone will feel torturous and some days being alone might feel rapturous. Exactly. Now, one of the things about, and I, you know, just realized this as I was talking to you, was that Chris Knight 
escaped from life before he had really even lived life. Talk about it. Just give us kind of a basic outline of, you know, how he got to the point where he was raiding a, a, a local camp as if it were his own personal Costco. And I have to say, when I was reading the description of him going through the camp, I was like, boy, that sounds like me at Costco. <laughs> and then to read, the, read that same line later, I went, okay, here we go. So, well, first of all, uh, um, Rick, I did want to say that one of the signs of a fun conversation, maybe one of the reasons why I really enjoy talking to you is you just said, like, you realizing things in the course of a conversation. Like, let's just be honest, all those other crappy podcasts that you could be listening to is very rote. Like, I got a list of questions. Oh, yeah. And then I'm going to press, you know, autoplay. I've heard that question a hundred times. The reason maybe why I like talking to you is that for both of us, I think we have like, oh, I just realized this because of what you said. And you're, and so I, I'm flying completely uh, when I'm talking to you. I have no idea what my answers are. You're getting this raw. And as a writer, I'm trying to give you my best answer. But you should know that there's always this little piece in the back of my head saying, dang, my second draft would have been better. My third draft. So, you know, as we talked about, I like to polish things or, or reduce things to their essential elements. So our conversations are a little all over the place and fatty, but I'm hoping for the betterment of the, you know, the, the I, I think it's kind of fun. It's totally di- the, in the opposite direction of my book where I, I am a little bit anal and do like to sort of like uh, multi drafts and carve things away until we have a little bit of a, a jewel box. Uh, but anyway, to talk the well marbled uh, meat of a prime rib Thank conversation. You. <laughs> Kobe beef. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so Chris Knight, let's talk, let's get a little bit of nuts and bolts. Chris Knight grew up in Maine, um, has with most things in the, in life, uh, nurture and nature play a part of it. He grew up in a very private, keep to yourself, blue collar, hardworking, well-respected Maine family, uh, milking cows a little bit of a, they had like a five acre plot that they farmed. Uh, this was a family that had very little money. The Father, the mother was a homemaker. There were, uh, I think, six children, five boys and a girl. Uh, the youngest, the girl, had down, has Down syndrome, so uh, mother was needed at home. The boys worked very hard. The father worked as like cleaning out tanker trucks in a creamery factory. So not a lot of money. Learned how to fix everything in the house, electrical, plumbing, you know, very much that sort of um, self-sufficient, you know, kind of almost Americana ethos, which is sort of beautiful. And then Chris Knight just had this natural shyness to him and was also raised that way. So nature and nurture. And at the age, when you think about a hermit, you usually think about older people that have had like lots of life experiences to ruminate on. Chris Knight confoundingly and virtually uniquely at the age of 20, just decided to drive his car as far into the woods as he can go until it was out of gas, basically in this, like almost stuck and out of gas and left the keys <laughs> to his brat. Excuse me if you hear some dogs in the background. This is uh you got me at home on a holiday time. Uh, Chris Knight left the keys in the car and walked into the woods without any plans, barely any supplies, like as if he was going camping for a weekend and, you know, ends up, 
disappeared for 27 years at the age of 20, where imagine getting no more advice from your elders, no more insights. Like I still call my father up, uh, dad, how do you do this tax form? Or how does that work? I'm still feeling like, you know, I'm 50, almost five years old. And I'm, you know, still relying on elders, that weird 20 years old, like, I could see you puffing out your chest and running away at 20. And I would last about four days if I was, you know, <laughs> before I came crawling back in saying too much for me. And here's someone who that is to me, maybe the most confounding aspect that this person got no advice or insight from an elder after the age of 20. I mean, what is that supposed to say? It's like, there's the, there's the, there's the disturbing thing saying that maybe we don't need advice from our elders. Maybe this guy's such an outlier. I don't really know. Uh, just had that perfect combination of self-sufficient upbringing, utter stubbornness, tough as nails, and then main of every place. I mean, I could expand it to the world, but let's just keep it as North America. I can't think of a better spot to disappear. There's definitely more wilderness in Montana and Alaska and Canada, but that's the type of wilderness that you will you will not be able to break into homes. You'll die. There's like the open spaces of Texas, but there's no trees. You'll be spotted a mile away and someone will probably call the police for a trespasser, if not shoot you. So Maine, perfectly. So he grew up in like the perfect spot with the perfect upbringing and this sort of ideal sense of stubbornness. And yet this like self-sufficiency that was drilled into him from a young age and all of this combined to allow a 20 year old person with no more uh, input from the outside world, except for things that could be easily stolen from a house, uh, surviving basically for his entire life. And as mentioned before, the, another confounding aspect is that Chris Knight did not voluntarily give up his hermitage. He's not the, he didn't say I've had enough I've learned this. He was going to go until his death and nobody would ever read a book about him. And I like the fact that I sort of, my ending sentiment to this whole book is after spending 10 years on it, I actually asked the question, maybe this project would have been pure if nobody ever knew about it. And I kind of like, it's like one of those things that learning about it almost ruins it a little bit. But of course, that's part of the I wouldn't say joke, but it's part of the, if you're going to start, if you're going to write a confounding story, you might as well end it with a tr confounding truth, which is that Chris Knight himself told me that if he had died out there and nature had consumed his body and, you know, nobody would ever know a single thing about him, not one book, not one sentence would have been written about him. Maybe that would have been the purest form. And uh, uh, by reading the book, by writing the book, by learning about Chris, maybe the, uh, the work of art, as you called it, of his life was slightly tainted. And I agree with that in a weird way. Uh, not saying you shouldn't read the book, but I'm saying that like that is such an a lofty ideal. It's like by observing the thing of ultimate beauty, we've sort of ruined it. Or by touching this, you know what, you, you know what I'm trying to get at? I'm, I'm not, like I said, I'm not sure if I'm circling around something. Am I making any sense, Rick? Absolutely. <laughs> and I think too, that one of the things that that as I read this book is you know you as a character slowly emerge from the side as a kind of a, a counterpoint to to Chris and I think that you do a very good job of showing yourself as 
to the reader in the same way you showed Chris yourself. And that, that in a sense, as an author, you're something... God, I haven't even thought about this till a second. As an author... In the book, you yourself are something of, of a hermit. And an author has to be a hermit because you're writing by yourself. It's not like you're writing with a crowd in there. You're not at the table doing a TV show. I mean, I think what you said earlier about there being like contradictory aspects to everybody. Um, yeah, I mean, part of my job is literally to get in an airplane and interact with complete strangers. But another part of my job is to sit in a room absolutely by myself for huge stretches of time, not on a computer, not connected to anything, but trying to write somebody else's story by myself. And so- Or um, read books to inform the telling of that story or the understanding right. of that story. And I've always been both frightened and attracted at the same time to solitude. Uh, as I think I'm briefly mentioned in the book, I once went on a 10 day silent retreat and of all the things I've done in this world, including like covering wars and, you know, being in very dangerous situations, I thought that being completely by myself and completely silent for 10 days was one of the most difficult things I've ever done. And I can't even explain to you why until you, like, I don't know if anybody listening has 10 days to do a Vipassana course so that you can even sign up for these courses. They're free and well-organized, but you don't speak to anyone. You don't even make eye contact. You promise not to read anything or bring a pen or write anything. You're just, you're just living in the present moment, a lot of meditating. And it's weirdly, I don't know, other people seem to love it. I was semi-tortured by the experience, but, um, anything that leaves a very profound impression on me, and that impression does not have to be good, it just has to be powerful, then I know is important. And so that so that solitude is bizarrely and profoundly important. We, I think as an entire species, don't spend enough time getting to know ourselves. And as I said earlier, the better we know ourselves or the more we accept ourselves, maybe the better we are as a person, you know, as a, as a social person. I feel like... Uh, you know, I, I mentioned I have three children. I feel like if I'm upset or not happy with myself, then I'm actually not going to be a good father or husband. And if I if I do accept the fact that I'm filled with contradictions, flaws, make a couple of mistakes every morning before breakfast and every evening after dinner, uh, and sort of try and have like a little bit of understanding about what you know the, that none of us are perfect. Uh, then maybe I, maybe I'm a better person socially and better person, you know, all, all alone. Um, and I think Chris Knight sort of brings up a lot of these thoughts without it being feeling like homework or onerous. Like, you know, uh, there's a couple of like things that Chris, Chris Knight hinted at. You know, I, I mentioned that he made me feel like a better family person. I, I think about Chris Knight all the time. He gave like a nickname to my kids. He called them the Cowboys. And, you know, half the time I would, you know, be sitting there in this jailhouse interview with Chris Knight, a person who shunned all social things. And he'd be like, aren't you neglecting your fatherly duties by coming all the way across the country to interview me here in Maine? Don't you need to go, go say hello to the, he would always say, you know, in his gruff way a voice before we'd hang up the phone you know talking to each other through a piece of plexiglass in jail he'd be like 
you know, get your, get your wife something nice and get some, get some candies for the Cowboys and sort of like encouraging me to be like this responsible family man. Here's like the least responsible hermit in the world. And I did, I get, I got a little goosebumpy about the whole thing. Like he's, he was right. Like this person who didn't want to be, he, he did have this sort of insight by sitting on the sidelines of humanity was able to sort of see our inanity and our foolishness with more crisp outline, but sacrificed his own. Well, actually, he found his own happiness, but he decided not to participate in our reindeer games, uh, our, our absurd games, but uh, gave me some great pieces of power. The, the biggest term in the world gave me some powerful, uh, lifelong pieces of advice to be more social. And I find that to be hilarious. You know, one of the things I think you do really well in both this book and in The Art Thief, there are, there are many similarities, although they are completely different reading experiences. But I love the description of Chris Knight's camp, his routine, the way he was able to walk through the woods, that really does bring to mind this picture of somebody whose life has become a work of art. Yeah, you. I am actually just combining the two. So in the art thief, which we talked about earlier, you know, a guy who stole art from museums just to surround himself with it in his tiny little bedroom. And it does have this weird, this is the first time I've made this connection too, Rick. So again, thank you for like forming these sudden, spontaneous and unexpected connections. Chris Knight lived for 25 of his 27 years uh, solitude in one spot, in this perfect spot. I guess I could, uh, two things strike me about the main woods. First of all, there's these, I have never seen more dense woods, like here in Mont uh, in Utah, where you're talking to me, and I, I lived in Montana when I wrote the book, there's these lodgepole forests with actually kind of big space in between it for large animals to walk through. But the Chris Knight woods, where he lived, were these tight trees that were so packed together that literally the forest had its own humidity. I remember walking from like the nearest road, step into the forest and suddenly I have to take off my glasses uh, and, and wipe them clean from the humidity. It's just, it's like this dense sponge. And then the second thing is that it was glaciated during the little ice age of about 10,000 years ago. And all these huge glacially carried boulders are all over these woods, which makes it navigation virtually impossible. And Chris Knight lived like, if you pictured like a cube of forest removed, like someone cut out with a chainsaw, like this clearing in the forest, but left the overhead branches. So a cube of forest removed, surrounded by like a stonehenge of boulders. Like that's sort of the best way to describe his site. He found this perfect spot that was naturally protected, not on the top of a hill that would get you too chilly during the during the winter, not at the bottom of a hill that would be too buggy in the summer, but somewhere in between with just a little breeze threading through. He made his camp here. And it was sort of like the art thieves chamber of um, riches. Like this was the spot. The art thief found his spot in the world that was made just for him in his bedroom that he constructed. And Chris Knight, the hermit, made his spot in the world that was constructed just for him where he found his contentment. And, um, and then let's just expand it out. Aren't we all looking for that spot that sort of gives us that feeling of being fulfilled as a human? And most of us maybe don't find it. And these are two people that did in an extremely unusual and non-legal way, but it makes us think 
Like, what's your Rick and everybody else? What's your magical spot that you could carve out of this world if you if you were able to? I leave it open. I hate to admit it. I'm actually probably sitting <laughs> at the moment. Uh, and that said, I think one of the things you do really well in this book is to like bring in, um, in you inform yourself and, and in also stir up the pot in the reader's mind, philosophy, stoicism, and an understanding of isolation and what that means. It, as you mentioned earlier, it's often seen as a punishment and it's physically bad for most humans. Um, talk about, and you only had, I think, what, what, 10 main sessions with the man himself. Talk about, you know, that that's a, a, a thin broth. <laughs> talk about turning that thin broth into a tasty full meal by virtue of you being you, the guy who reads and talks to other people. Because you talked to all his neighbors, too, and, and stayed in his camp. So Chris Knight himself never spoke to any other journalist. He spoke to me, chose me, and so I, I feel really, as I mentioned earlier, honored about that. But he only granted me 10, basically, one-hour interviews that were very challenging, very difficult. And, you know, you can think, Rick, oh my gosh, he only granted me 10. But on the other hand, you could also think, oh my goodness, he actually granted me 10 hours of interviews. You know, so I, I, I spent much of the writing process of this book less frustrated about what I didn't have, but more grateful about what I was given. And Chris Knight, I could tell during those 10 hours, he's not one to... <laughs> waste words the person doesn't speak for 27 years and so it felt very precise it almost felt richer than 10 hours despite the fact that he wasn't a big gabby person he took our interviews extremely seriously there wasn't uh and so he gave me the whole of himself for those 10 hours and which is 10 hours more than he gave to almost anybody else especially a journalist and so yeah uh would i did i have 50 hours more worth of questions yeah, probably. Uh, but I, re I really tried to, in a, maybe a Chris Knight style, uh, be grateful for the small amount that I did have rather than regretful about the uh, things that I did not have. And also, of course, there was a few moments where I'm like, oh my gosh, I need to wring blood from a stone here. I have, do not have a lot of information. And so I spent, uh, I think I slept at Chris Knight's site uh, in every single season of the year for five or six times, winter, summer, bug season, snow season, uh, sat there by myself, just listening. I remember just sitting in the spot that he lived in for 27 years, felt like I, not like I was trespassing on somebody's property, which by the way, I was, but uh, trespassing on Chris Knight's uh, area, it felt like very much his, but I wanted to see what he experienced. And I will never forget my time spending as my time that I spent in his hermitage. It is utterly lovely. I mean, just from the bird call in the spring to the quietness of winter to the windstorms, um, that was beautiful. And then just driving around. It's like church. Yeah. Oh, very much. Very beautiful description, especially 
if one a lot of one's spirituality seems to come from natural things, which is the case with me. I've always uh, I'm, I'm talking to you from the Rocky Mountains here, and I'm looking forward to going outside later today. And exactly, I feel very. That's where I feel the presence of uh, of forces greater than myself. And Chris Knight sort of hinted at that too. Talking to the neighbors was fascinating, and then the um, the law enforcement and legal. Uh, people you would think would be very there's a French word carré um, I was trying to think very square very like confined to like oh this is legal and this is illegal and I also was beautifully moved by the fact that you know lawyers and uh, police officers and inspectors all sort of had this little they also spoke with a beautiful softness and un even the Terry Hughes, the game warden that eventually arrested Chris Knight said, man, you know, I was in the Marines for 10 years. I'm like a classic jarhead. I'm, then I was in law enforcement for 18 years. There's right and there's wrong. And, I, you know, I'm usually very, very clear on which side, you know, which is which. But I was like, oh, man, I, I cannot prevent myself from feeling a softness to Chris Knight. And I asked him why. And he's like, I fancy myself an amazing woodsman, said Terry, Terry Hughes, the person who captured Chris Knight. And he's like, I followed Chris Knight through the woods to his camp the night he was arrested. And I have never seen somebody move through the woods like that. And I have this uh, recorded interview with the law enforcement officer. You know, he's in his uniform, starched uniform and his boots and his tightly cut hair. And he's like waxing poetic. Like I can see his eyes glaze over. He's like, I've never, I've moved like a cat. Every footfall was precise. This was like, like you sort of hinted before, Rick, he was sure that he was witnessing a work of performance art moving through the woods. And if you can get a rough and tumble Marine and law enforcement person to wax poetic, then you have achieved something. As a writer, you're talking to a man who's, on one hand, he hasn't spoken to anybody for all these years. What he has done is read incessantly and voluminously and, and uh, not just light reading. He, well, actually, a lot of light reading. He just read whatever he could get his hands on. And that's a way in which he was intimately connected to humanity. You are writing the story of a man who was intimately connected to the world by reading. And I think that's, in a sense, probably why part of why this book speaks so deeply to readers and reaches into us and rests us out of our reading selves into our real selves. I'm so glad you brought this up. Um, right, in Again, 191 pages. So we're not talking about a million page book here, but yes, besides the story of the hermit, besides this philosophical thing, besides this sort of, I don't know about comic relief, but I bring myself in as the reporter struggling to making mistakes and being foolish, but actually just that's what anybody would do. How, you know, if there's no rule book for how to interact with someone, uh, how, how, does, how could you avoid making errors? But beside all that to the side, I think, uh, one of the quiet lessons or one of the things I was thinking about as I was writing this is that this is a celebration of the power of the written 
word. And I didn't want to hit any reader over the head with that. But like, first of all, if you like to read books, and there are still a few of us left here, uh, you know, besides, there's a few of us left that don't spend all day looking at TikTok. Uh, If you still like to read books, then you do by the very definition of that, spend time alone. Even if you're reading a book, you're by yourself. It is a weirdly solo activity. Nobody says like, you know, everybody look at me, I'm gonna read a book. You know, it's like you go into your bedroom or your quiet spot and you read and maybe someone will spot you on an airplane or a train, but it is a solo activity between you and this, as Chris Knight himself beautifully phrased it, you get to enter the world inside of a book. And it's a form uh, of meditation. Yeah, and escapism while without actually leaving anywhere. You know, as as I think Chris Knight said to me, I, you know, I don't I have no need to travel because I can read. And reading is my form of travel. You can literally without having to even go through TSA, um, you know, procedures and taking off your shoes, you can go anywhere in the world when you open the pages of a book. Keep your shoes on and uh, don't take your belt off. Laptop could stay in the bag. Um, I think I pushed that joke enough. Um, but yeah, I, I, and I, I never wanted it to be like, I think it would be a little cheesy of me to put in bold print. Hey, this book is a reason to read books. But in a funny sort of way, I'm so glad you touched on it. Like, how could a reader not be weirdly charmed by the person who like broke into houses and tried to take, you know, take books off their readings, you know, what was on the bedside table and like, oh, I need to read that book. It's like taking books and like reading them were an essential part of Chris Knight's very existence. And then let's just spin this even into one more level. Books are also an object, like literally, I mean, we're not talking about e-readers here because out in the woods, you know, no batteries, no electricity. We're talking actual books on paper. They're also an object. And he took his magazines and his books and used them after they gave him the mental nourishment. He bound them with duct tape and used them as bricks and buried them under the ground to make a flooring that was flat in which water could drain through. So he used books as into, you know, intellectual nourishment and then didn't forget that they were cut out of trees and useful as objects beyond their words. And I find that to be sort of hilarious, weirdly leaping. You know, you're, you know, since I got to talk to you about both books, it reminds me in the art thief, after the art is sort of thrown away, this guy finds this beautiful painting on copper by one of the great Renaissance artists and looks at this painting on copper and says, I know what to do with this. I have a leak in my hen house roof and hammers it right onto the hen house roof. And it's like, yeah, these things that we think of as intellectual and flighty also have substance and heft and i kind of love that sort of highbrow lowbrow util, you know actual physical utilization and mental nourishment at the same time in rick i'm thanking you again for provoking these connections that i until this very moment even though i spent 10 years immersed in both those projects never connected so thanks to you for forming them the new book by michael finkel is the art thief his previous work is A Stranger in the Woods. Don't bind them up and bury them. Put them on your bookshelf so that others can see them and read them as well. Thank you for joining me, Michael. Thank you so much, Rick.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.